The Black Doctors Podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others, because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. Hello and welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. This week, I'm so happy to be speaking with Dr. Tonia Farmer. She is a board-certified otolaryngology head and neck surgeon or ENT surgeon to short. She trained at Virginia Commonwealth University is where she completed medical school as well as her residency. She currently practices at her group, the Lippy Group in Ohio. Dr. Farmer, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me and inviting me. Uh, So, so excited to hear about your practice. So as an intern in anesthesia, I actually spent one month on uh, rotating with the ENT surgeons. But Talk to us. Tell me about your day-to-day practice as an ENT surgeon. Yeah, so ENT, uh, when with anesthesia, yeah, we probably interact a lot, right? With ENT, we share the ear, we share the airway, <laughs> so we definitely share the airway. Um, but my, I'm a general otolaryngologist um, here in Ohio. I I see adults and I see children in my practice as well. Um, so uh, I split my time, of course, between the office and the operating room. So a, a day in my life really starts at home. I always, when I get to work, I always tell my staff, I feel like I've worked 10 hours already because I have three girls. Uh, so my day usually, my, my, my first job starts here at home, you know, getting them ready. Thank goodness we're going into the summer break. So that's given me a little bit of a a break from that but it starts here at home with my three girls and my husband and then uh, off to the office typically my my office days start around between 8 and 8 30 uh, and my OR days start at at 7 30 so in the office I see anywhere between 35 and 40 patients a day if I'm there for a whole day um, if I'm there for half a day, then I split my time and go to the operating room and do cases. Of course, as a surgeon, I prefer to be in the operating room. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but I do all kinds of cases from, you know, kids with uh, tonsils and adenoids and tubes um, all the way up to the bigger head and neck cases uh, with thyroidectomies uh, and thyroglossal duct cysts and neck masses and cancer surgery, et cetera. Most of what ear, nose, and throat surgeons do is outpatient. So uh, the blessing is that I own my own surgery center. So most of what I do is right out of my surgery center outpatient. But if I do have cases uh, that require an overnight stay or more complicated, um, then I will go to our local hospital where I operate out of. Oh, that's so interesting. And what, what are some of the more common complaints that you see? Um, the, the biggest <laughs> complaints I see, because listen, I live in Northeast Ohio in the Midwest. So it is true when they say this is like the sinus belt of America. So <laughs> I see a lot of uh, sinusitis and allergies. I see a lot of sinus disease. Probably my practice is probably really heavy, heavily based on um, sinus and allergy. I also have a uh, an allergy clinic at my office. 
So I'm able to do all of my own allergy testing, diagnose that, as well as provide the treatment. So we do our own uh, immunotherapy and allergy shots for our patients. So uh, I'm, I pride myself in, in saying that we really give comprehensive care to the patient uh, at my practice. In addition, you know, to sinus uh, stuff, I also, you know, do quite a bit of thyroidectomy surgery. Um, right now, I'm the only ear, nose, and throat surgeon in town. Wow. We had a, a, another ear, nose, and throat surgeon who retired. He was not in, in our practice. He had his own private practice, but he retired about seven or eight months ago. So I've become the only ear, nose, and throat surgeon here, which has made the practice quite busy. Um, I do. There's another uh, doctor in my practice who is the otologist. So he does all of the major ear stuff. Um, but as far as all of the head and neck stuff, the neck masses, the sinus disease, et cetera, that all, that all comes to me. So it does make for a busy practice. Wow. Sounds like it. And how many days of the week are you in the operating room? How many cases do you average a day? Mm -hmm. Right now, I'm in the operating room two days a week and I'm in the office two days. It kind of works out to about three to four days that I'm working, which is less now um, a little bit than it was pre-COVID. Um, and that's made it even more busy. Uh, Pre-COVID, I was, you know, in the office four days a week. To Now I'm in the office about three days a week. Uh, and that's simply because after COVID, mm -hmm. Uh, my my partner and I decided that we would work opposite in the office because it was just too many patients um, coming through the practice at the same time. So we were trying to adhere to protocol. Yeah. In addition, we have three nurse practitioners in our office. So that tells you how busy we are because it's it's myself and, and an otologist as well as three nurse practitioners, you know, to get it done. So I'm in the office um, about... I'm in the office a whole one and a half days, and then I'm in the operating room a whole day and a half, so one and a half days. Um, on my all day in the operating room, it really depends on which case I'm doing. If it's a bigger case, like maybe a big uh, sinus case that will take a, a couple hours versus the smaller quick cases like tubes and tonsils and adenoids. But I can do anywhere from about five to 12 cases uh, on a Wednesday, just depending on what the mix of cases are. Um, and in my office, like I said, anywhere from 30 to 40 patients, you know, in a, in a day. Wow. So. Yeah, that's that's uh, busy. Who do you operate with? Do you have a uh, first assist or PAs? Um, I do. I have a, um, a scrub nurse who operates with me. So that's typically what I what I do. I don't have any residents um, at all. I did. I did have fellows about a year ago. Um, our hospital system here, Stewart Health. Um, they have a program in Boston, and so they contacted me. The uh, head and neck department contacted me and asked me would I be willing to take some fellows. So I was training fellows um, uh, pre-COVID. I haven't had any fellows during 
the COVID pandemic. So that will probably start up um, in a bit where I, I will have a fellow. So it's nice when you have a fellow with you because they operate, they can round, you can say, hey, go see this console for me, you know? <laughs> so when you don't have a fellow, it, it all falls on you. But uh, when I operate, pretty much I do operate outpatient. When I'm outpatient, I operate with my scrub nurse. When I'm at the hospital, the hospital does have a, cert, a general surgery residency program. So if I'm there doing a thyroid or I'm doing a thyroglossal duct cyst or a submandibular gland or I'm doing something like that, then the general surgery residents will be like, okay, we're going to Dr. Farmer's room, <laughs> you know, and they'll, <laughs> and they'll, they'll come in and they will first assist and I'll take them through the case. You know, the other types of surgeries I do like sinus surgery, I, I really don't need a a general surgery resident. They don't care about going in the nose and all that. They don't care right. about that. You know, I just need a, a first assist nurse to, to help me pass me some instruments. So. Gotcha. And I saw on your website, you do a procedure called a balloon sinoplasty. Can you explain that? Yeah. So balloon sinoplasty is a really nice technique. Think about it like angioplasty for the heart you know, where you're, you're ballooning open or dilating a, a clogged blood, blood vessel. But in the sinus passages, if the opening into the sinus passage is obstructed or narrow, this is a nice technique that has come about where a guide wire is fed through that narrow opening and then a balloon catheter goes over the wire and that opening is dilated. So you're getting a micro fracture of the bony opening into the sinus versus doing a, a more traditional, larger hole type of sinus surgery and physically removing bone and soft tissue. So balloon sinoplasty is, is a technique to try to save tissue, to try to preserve the anatomy but by dilating, open, and obstructed sinus. It can be used alone or it can be used in combination with other procedures like a septoplasty surgery. And what's also nice about it is it can be done in the office, you know, under some local under some local anesthesia, or you can combine it intraoperatively under anesthesia with another procedure that you may be doing because it's not something that addresses a deviated septum. It doesn't address enlargement of the turbinates. It's really there to open a narrowed passageway into the sinuses. Gotcha. Yeah, it's very interesting. Mm -hmm. They've come up with more and more advances in the field. Oh my gosh. It, I think every field, you know, you come up with advances. I'm sure there's things like that in anesthesia that they've come up with, like the glide scope, yeah, right? Yeah, the glide scope <laughs> makes things a lot easier. It makes things a lot easier. Love the glide scope. <laughs> um, so Dr. Farmer, talk to us about when you decided to become a physician. So my story um, when I wanted to become a physician goes all the way back to when I was seven years old. Uh, when I was seven years old, uh, I had a twin sister. I am a twin, was a twin. And at the age of seven, my twin sister her name was Sonia. I'm Tonya. She was Sonia. She was diagnosed with metastatic osteosarcoma or bone cancer. Wow. Um, and at that time, she ended up having a, a full leg amputation and hemipelvectomy um, to remove the bone cancer that started uh, in her femur. And as a young child, I was exposed to 
um, a hospital very early on because I was in and out of the hospital with my mom and with my sister as she got her treatment. Um, but two years of really battling cancer, she passed away. And as I say, she was healed in heaven of her cancer. But being exposed to that, seeing the doctors and how the doctors cared for my sister, but they also cared for us as a family, um, recognizing that there was a twin sister here involved. And, and I think because it was, it is a pediatric field, you know, it was pediatric oncology, pediatric surgery, et cetera, who was dealing with our family. They were, of course, more um, aware of sort of that interaction and that, that mental wear on a young child. So I felt like they took me in and I went round with the doctors. You know, of course, I don't know that that would happen today, you know, just the way, the way things are. But at that time, all that time ago, I would go on little rounds with them and hang out with the doctors and they'd put a stethoscope around my neck. And, you know, that was an impression that left an impression on me. And so I said, I want to be a doctor just like these doctors who cared for my, my sister and for our family. I want to be there for families when they are in need and, you know, at a crisis in their life and help them through it just like they did for us. So that started my journey on becoming a doctor and I never looked back. It was every step of the way, no, no diversions, no, no, you know, let's take a little break here. Nope. It was boom, 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 boom. Every single step until I became a doctor. So at William and Mary, where you went for undergrad, what was your major? Um, I majored in biology. I majored in biology at William and Mary. And what was your experience in undergrad and applying to medical school? You know, my I had a really good experience actually applying to undergraduate and to medical school because I feel like God put people in my life that needed to be in my life at that time. And I feel like he's always positioned me where I need to be. And in high school, I had an amazing guidance counselor a white man named Mr. Luongo, who literally stays in touch with me even to this day. He's an older gentleman now, and you know he'll send me Christmas cards and things like that. But he was invested, felt like he was invested in my well-being at that time in, in high school, and he was the one who pushed me to go to William & Mary. I was looking at the University of Virginia. I was looking at William & Mary because of his guidance. And at the time, a guy that I was dating at the time was going to UVA. So of course, you know me, I'm like, oh, I'm going to UVA, you know, because that's where my boyfriend is. And he's like, no, I'm like, you need to go to William Mary. So, so I went to concentrate. There you go. So I did go to William Mary, made the best decision going there. And it was a good experience. You know, it's, it's a bigger um, black student population right now. But at the time, it was a smaller black student population. But what made that nice is because it was a smaller um, population of black students, everyone, we were all tight, we were all close and, you know, really supported each other. So I had a good experience through college as far as that's concerned. You know, did I come across some professors who were naysayers and not supportive? Absolutely. You know, I, all through high school, I, I got phenomenal grades you know, graduated number two in my class and, you know, going to college, it, it, I felt like it should be the same. And, you know, you get to college and it's a big a, a, an awakening, right? A rude awakening. And it was much harder than high school. And so I remember my first biology test 
and I got a C on the test. When I tell you I went back to my dorm room and I cried my eyes out all day over this C, like what, what, a C? So the professor called me to his office and said to me, you know, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, I want to be a doctor. And he told me, I was not smart enough to be a doctor. Oh. There was no way I was going to be a doctor because I got a C on this test and I needed to rethink my major and rethink what I wanted to do with my life. You know, and of of course I had a little bit of a pity party, you know, over what he said, but then it was like, no, I'm not I'm not going to accept your version of me, you know? And so that really encouraged me to say, okay, Tony, let's get on it. You yeah. know, let's get on it here, you know? And that kind of changed everything for me too, to really refocus on, listen, let's remember what your dream is, you know, and get back on track. Uh, and I did. So you just have to push through those challenges because you're going to have people like that who come into your life, especially when you're a black student who's trying to do something. So um, but then I went on to college, uh, excuse me, to medical school up the road to Richmond at the at the time it was called the Medical College of Virginia. I'm starting to age myself here. You know, when when a look, when a medical school changes their name. Right. You know, are you aging yourself? So uh, it was called the, Met, the Virginia Commonwealth Medical Medical College of Virginia or MCV at the time. And now it's called Virginia Commonwealth University School of Medicine. So. Um, but again, there was a, a tight knit uh, group of black students uh, at the medical school. And Mr. Tucker was a gentleman who was there who was really in charge of, you know, just the school diversity for the kid, for the black students and, and really helping us navigate uh, the challenges of getting into medical school. So um, I was blessed in that in that sense. And I excelled in medical school. I, I absolutely excelled in medical school. I was determined on the first day of medical school that I was going to be top in my class and I was going to be inducted into AOA or Alpha Omega Alpha, which is the honor society in medical school. And I did just that um, as a as a third year medical student um, and was in the top five percent of my class. And by doing that, um, I remember the head of neck anatomy professor, which here's a spoiler alert to everyone here. I hated, I hated head and neck anatomy in medical school, hated it. It was so hard. I had to study so hard for it. And I was just like, this sucks. Like head and neck anatomy sucks. And here I am as a head and neck surgeon, right? So, <laughs> so the things that challenge us, we must embrace them, right? <laughs> so that's how I, I got into the field of, of ear, nose, and throat because I really wanted to be an OBGYN wow. my whole entire life until I got to medical school. <laughs> so, so what made the change for you? When did you decide to, to go into You know, I all my life, don't ask me why I wanted to be an OBGYN. Um, no one in my family is in the medical field. We don't have doctors and nurses in our medical in our family. Um, it's not a, a heavy profession at all. No doctors at all. But for some reason, my my brain as a child, I just said I want to do OBGYN. So even through high school and college, I would volunteer at the local hospital on the um, maternity ward um, because I just knew that's what I wanted to do and. When I was in my third year of medical school and I did my OB rotation, I was like, oh, no, this is not what I want to do. 
no way at all. And, you know, I think being exposed, really exposed to the field, you know, not just being on the maternity ward and playing with the babies and stuff, you know, I really realized, no, this is what this field is all about. And I just felt like, no, that's not, that's not what I want to do. I, at the time I was even thinking ahead of lifestyle and, you know, babies come when they want to come, you know, and do I want that lifestyle? So I actually went to my head and neck professor, Dr. Seibel and said, you know, Dr. Seibel, cause he was also kind of like the, the class kind of counselor, I guess you could call him, you know, and not in addition to being the head and neck professor. But I said, Dr. Sabell, I'm I'm at a loss now. I thought I wanted to do OBGYN. And these words he said to me, he said, Tony, he said, you can do whatever you want to do. You are top in your class. You are top in your class. You are AOA you can go into any field you want to, you name it, you got it. So I said, really? He's like, absolutely. Look at the more, you know, um, challenging, look at the more competitive fields like ophthalmology and ENT and dermatology, look at some of the more competitive residencies. And so that's what I did. I looked at, you know, some of the more competitive residencies. And at the time, my my auntie, you know, we all have a favorite auntie, right? So my favorite auntie, my favorite auntie, Nina, she's a hairstylist in New Jersey, which is where I was raised. Um, I was talking to her about, you know, hey, Aunt Nina, you know, I don't know what I want to do. I'm thinking about looking into some fields like ENT, et cetera. And she was like, ENT, hey, one of my clients, um, her husband is an ENT surgeon in Philly. So that is what made me say, okay, well, let me contact him. And I contacted him and asked him, could I come and do a rotation with him in Philly? And he was agreeable. And I went and rotated with him for a month. And it was amazing. It was the best. I just gravitated towards ENT and said, this is the field for me. And that's what, you know, made me make my decision to enter the the uh, match program for ENT. How was the residency program for you? So residency was interesting. Okay. <laughs> residency was great. It was, it was, it really was a good experience, but here's why it was interesting. First of all, the VCU School of Medicine or MCV at the time, otolaryngology head and neck residency program had never had a female resident in their program before. So I was the first female resident they had ever taken, not first female black, but first female ever (laughs) that they had had in their program, which at the time when I applied, you know, when I went into the match, I didn't realize that. Um, I didn't realize that until after I actually matched it you know, started the program, like, Hey, you guys have never had a woman, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So it, it, (laughs) it did make things interesting. You know, it did make things interesting because I remember one, one incident where, um, uh, I was learning, we were learning how to drill a mastoid and we were doing a cochlear implant. We were learning how to do cochlear implants, which is a, an electric, uh, electronic implant that you place into the inner ear to help with those who have very uh, profound hearing loss. And so our professor, the otologist, Dr. Sismanis at the time, as a resident, you start the case, you get down to a certain 
point. And, you know, then you call, you know, the attending in who will go through the rest of the case with you. So I just kept pushing the, the boundaries and pushing and pushing and pushing and doing more and more and more before I would have him called. And I remember one day he came into the OR because I didn't have him called when I guess he thought maybe he should have gotten a call, you know, mm-hmm. or it was time for him to come in. So he comes in and he sees how much I have done, you know, and, you know, he's like, wow, okay. You know, so he allowed me to insert the electrode into the inner ear, which usually that's what the attending did. And this is at that time, if things have changed, things may have changed. But at that time, the attending, he, he, as the attending would put the actual electrode into the inner ear. So he allowed me to do that. And some of the other residents were like, oh, he just favors you because you're a girl, oh, you know, oh, 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 you know, and it's like, no, it's because I'm that good, you know, right. <laughs> so, you know, or I would, I would get things like we had a patient who at the time uh, was coming in for surgery and it was a, it was like maybe a, a 13 or 14 year old girl who was coming in to get her tonsils out. Um, but of course, you know, you do your pre- a pregnancy test pre-op and her pregnancy test came back positive. And so they're like, who's, who's going to tell, who's going to tell her, who's going to tell the family, send Tony, you're a girl. Yep. Go send and it's like, why is it that it falls on me? Because I'm, I'm the, the woman, you know, you know, so different things like that, you know, but nothing, nothing serious or nothing that I felt was really sexist. You know, I knew that they were playing around and whatever. I never took it as a serious sexist, you know, type of incident. I think where more incidents that I experienced as a resident were more racial, you know, more racist as, as a resident, um, than sexist. Yeah. And some, some mostly by patients and some by, I had one attending who, um, I, I was going on vacation and you know how, well, I don't know, doctor, maybe, you know, you know how us, us women do us black women do, you know, if we going on vacation and we going away to the, uh, uh, to the sea or to the Island or something, you know, we got to get our hair braided, yeah. you know? Braids. Yeah. So, right. So I, I got my hair braided and when I came back from vacation, of course, I wore my braids back, pulled back, you know, um, not flowing everywhere, but pull, have, having them pulled back and neat. And this attending told me that my braids were very unprofessional and I should remove them. So that was something that I experienced. And, and it's a whole nother story. We could talk about how that affected me as a black woman in natural hair. That's a whole nother discussion that don't have nothing to do with your podcast, <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know, that, that was an incident I've had, I had as a chief resident, as a chief resident, you know, when you round, you're in charge of rounds. And I remember going into a room, it was an elderly white woman and her son was there and as I'm speaking to her and her son and asking questions, her son never looked at me, never made eye contact with me. And he only answered questions to my junior resident who was a white man standing next to me. He would only speak to my junior resident and only respond to him. And my junior resident said, um, no, Dr. Farmer's the chief resident. This white man never, never addressed me in the whole entire time, you know, at all, you know, or, times I would go into the room with, 
with elderly white patients and they'd call me girl, hey girl, come here, you know, or help me with this girl. Uh, in the, at the VA in Richmond, there was a, a, a elderly white man who called me a racial slur, which I didn't even know it. I didn't hear it, but my attending did. And so my attending went in and had words with this gentleman and then came out and told me, I don't want you to go in there and see him. You, you don't, you don't even go in and deal with that. You know, wow. so it, there were, there were incidences like that, which at the time, I don't think my fellow residents realized was going on because they were all white men. But I will say this being out of residency, there's one resident um, who at the time was a junior resident to me. And um, he was under me as a resident. I, I think was he, he was either one or two years behind me now. I just can't even remember, but he's up in Boston now. And he reached out to me. He reached out to me. And because I, some things I was posting on social media and on LinkedIn and things like that. And he shared an article with me one day. He just said, you know, Tony, I don't think I really appreciated maybe what you went through. And I shared some things with him and he was, wow, I'm so sorry that you had to experience things like that. Like I never realized it, you know, so that, that meant a lot to me that, but at the time, again, you're the only one you're, you're, I'm the only black resident. I'm the only black person. So no one else really understands what you're going through at that time. Yeah. And we could go, I'm sure, on and on and on with all these stories. But yeah. you, stories, you persevered. Absolutely. Um, your track record, I mean, speaks for itself. And coming out of residency, you were recruited by the Dr. Lippy, who was a world renowned yeah. uh, ENT surgeon. You were recruited. What do you think uh, stuck out for him to, to pursue you and, and hire you on? Um, I think that just my my ability, my surgical ability you know, spoke for itself. Um, I also think just my character, you know, spoke for itself as well. I had a really good relationship with our chair at the time. Dr. Sismanis was the chair of the ENT department at the time when I was in residency. I think that he saw my ability. He saw my value. And I think that he uh, was also a great catalyst with it. Um, he is also an He's retired now, but he was an otologist as well. So I think that he was he was a great character witness, if we can use that. You know, he was a great character witness for me with Dr. Lippy. So and I also think when I was a chief resident, I literally bumped into Dr. Lippy at an ear, nose, and throat conference called the Cherry Blossom Conference that was in DC every year. And I was at the kiosk as a as a chief resident looking at all of the job postings that they had. And Dr. Lippy and I literally bumped into each other, like <laughs> shoulder to shoulder, bumped into each other, right? Got, listen, positioning. I said that earlier. I truly believe in positioning, you know, and life's positions. And God positioned me there and positioned Dr. Lippy there for a reason. And we bumped into each other. And, you know, I said, oh, I'm sorry. And I turned and I looked and I saw, I said, oh my, oh, you're Dr. Lippy. And so he looks at my name tag and he goes, you're Dr. Farmer. I'm like, you don't know me. Like, <laughs> you don't know me. You're just saying that, right? So we sat down and we had like a 30 minute conversation. We talked and talked. He asked me a lot of questions. I asked him questions. And at the end of the conversation, I, this is a true story, a true story. He says to me, Dr. Farmer, 
you're black. And I said, yes, Dr. Lippy, I am. And I'm wondering to myself, where's this conversation mm. going? You know, and he says, well, I'm Jewish. And I said, okay. <laughs> and and he, he said, I would like to invite you to Ohio and tour the practice, see the practice, see what it's all about. And I want you to know that there is a black population in Warren, Ohio, that would welcome you because I would never want to go anywhere where there was not a Jewish population that would welcome me. And I thought, okay, I, I take that as sincere and genuine. So I, I came to Ohio and I quote unquote interviewed, you know, here and saw the practice, et cetera. And on that first night when I got my itinerary, from them, there was a dinner. Um, so I was brought to this local restaurant for dinner, um, thinking I was coming to dinner with the partners of the practice at the time, et cetera. And I walk into this dinner and there's nothing but black people sitting there. It's hmm. just black people here. And I'm like, oh my goodness. And what he had did was plant this dinner with local black leaders in the community, black pastors, some of the black doctors at the time, the, the CEO of one of the hospital systems here was a black man. The, the vice president of human resources for the hospital system was a black woman and he community leaders, black community leaders, they were all in this meeting and they were charged with convinced Dr. Farmer to come to Ohio. <laughs> and, <Wow. laughs> and I just thought that was amazing. Like, I just thought that was so genuine. And here I am in Ohio owning the Lippy Group 20 years later. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So that's how I got to Ohio and that's how I got to the Lippy Group was because of that. That That is such an amazing, incredible story. <laughs> it's yep. true. <laughs> True story. <laughs> yeah, and, and you talked about the importance of positioning, and so often one of the barriers for underrepresented minorities in medicine for Black people, people of color, we aren't in those positions to gain this experience. So you've spoken previously right. about the importance of mentorship. How do you yeah. actively mentor students interested in medicine? So I do have a um, a program and I, I say it's informal right now and I'm in the process of turning it into a formal, you know, um, but I have junior and senior high school students as well as medical students who will come and shadow and rotate with me. Now, I am a preceptor in one of the medical schools here in Ohio where there are medical students. And then I also get residents who come and rotate through my practice. Okay. So I consider that one thing, you know, I don't, they're, they're not always black students. I can get some white students and, and other nationalities who come through that as, as coming to rotate with me to get ENT experience. But where my heart is, is, you know, going now is to students who are not exposed to medicine, who don't have that exposure or are in a position where they would never be exposed um, to that. So I think, you know, being exposed early on is so very important because just like I was exposed to medicine as a young child, the impression that it made, you know, on me is important. So now I do have high school um, juniors and seniors who will come and shadow 
with me, um, black students, um, I think it's important for them to see someone who looks like them as well so that they can say, hey, I can do that. I have I had a young man who um, has been shadowing me for the past couple days. He's 17 years old. He's a, um, going into his senior year of high school. And I do know his mother, and but he reached out to me um, and said, I'm thinking about the field of medicine. I don't know what kind of what I want to do, whether it's a doctor or a nurse or some other kind of thing. But I do know I'd like to go into the health field. What could I shadow you? So he's been with me this week and um, he has been with me in the office, seeing patients, et cetera, the whole day. And it's been an amazing experience for me as well as for him just to see how his this the transformation how he has lit up you know and i call the students doctor you know i call them student doctor so um that's what i i I would call him and when we would go in the room and i would introduce him and say you know this is student dr evans he's shadowing in the office and his face like lit up like she called me doctor like she called me dr evan you know and so when i would uh when i talked to his mom um, on yesterday, on Friday, um, I said to her, as I'm talking to her, and I, I just called him Dr. Evans because I was so used to calling him Dr. Evans in the office over the past two days. She looked at me and she's like, what? Dr. Evans? I said, yes, I speak that into his yes. life. I speak those words into his life that he can be a doctor. So she says, you know, he came home yesterday and told me he wants to be a doctor. What? that's what it's about. Like, Oh my, like that is what it's about. Like that, just that little exposure. He saw that I can do this. I can do this. I can be a doctor. Just like that impression I got when I was so young. So now, you know, and he asked me, Dr. Farmer, are there other doctors that you think I could shadow? And I'm like, sure, absolutely. I can call, let me see, Dr. Kwame, he, he's our podiatrist. He's a black podiatrist. And Dr. Martins, he's a, he's a black orthodontist. And Dr. Ugokwe, oh, wait, he's our black neurosurgeon. And I'm thinking to myself, Tony, you have all this influence. Like, you, you, these are your colleagues. These are your friends who are black doctors. Like, yes, these young people can shadow with them. So let's get it together here and get this program, you know, together for these young kids. And, and so I truly believe that, you know, God positions you, you know, and sometimes the positions that you go through, you know, as my pastor would say, sometimes those positions are painful, but there's a purpose for every position so that it puts you into that power that you are supposed to be in. So I truly believe in that. I really do. Absolutely. I think it's so important to realize that whether you work in academics or private practice, there's always a pathway or an opportunity for you to give back and provide. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And we and we need more. You know, this young man, I said, listen, we need more black males in the field of medicine. So, yes, Dr. Evans, you will be a doctor. (laughs) So, (laughs) So I'm looking forward to that day when I go to his medical school graduation and say, I told you so. (laughs) Absolutely. And selfish plug, Dr. Farmer, I can't talk with an ENT surgeon without Putting in a word for Dr. Elizabeth Blair. She's a ear, nose, and throat surgeon at University of Chicago. And she mentored ah. me, um, a white woman, former army uh-huh. officer. And she took me under her wing as a wow. resident. And to this day, mm-hmm. I 
talk with Dr. Blair more than any of my anesthesia attendings. And she just really means the world to me. Absolutely amazing human being. I think that that's so important what you said and having a mentor and and it's important for young medical students, even before you get to medical school, to have a mentor. You know, um, there's so many great programs now for pre-med students to get plugged into so that you can get that medical mentor to help you navigate, you know, some of the trials and tribulations of going into medicine. I wish I had that. I, I had people who were in my corner, of course, people who were supporting me from my family members to my guidance counselor, as like I talked to you about, to Mr. Tucker, who was there for black students in, you know, um, in medical school. But to have that, I never had a physician, you know, mentor going through you know, training. And, and I wish I did because maybe some of the bumps that I came across, I I wouldn't have, or it would have been easier, but it's so important that you have that mentor. So what a wonderful thing that that you still stay in touch with her and that, you know, she really supported you through, through all of that. And even now, you know, even now that's wonderful. And Hey, and it was an ENT, ENT, right? I'm telling you. (laughs) ENT is bomb.com. I'm telling you, ENT. <laughs> so Dr. Farber, in addition to everything that you do, an incredible surgeon, a mentor, business owner. Yes. You're also an entrepreneur. You're the CEO of Salt Me. Can you tell us about this? So Salt Me is a company. Currently, it's an e-commerce company, and I'm working to get it into retail, actually. There are some things coming down the pike that I can't talk about, but I'm super excited about. But Salt Me is a company that I started about three years ago, and it really came about because of my patients. I had one patient who came in, um, a really difficult sinus patient who's had not her as a patient, but just her sinus disease uh, was really difficult to treat. She has something called Samter's triad, and but she's one of those patients who's really active in her medical care. She came in and talked to me about halo therapy or salt therapy. Have you have you ever heard of halo therapy or salt therapy, doctor? I, have I, I don't not. know if you have or not, but it's it's um, really started in, in the European countries, but it's where you're inhaling an aerosolized um, medical grade salt that you're inhaling for treatments. And it kind it's supposed to mimic what salt cave miners in the European countries experienced. It never had the pulmonary disease and the sinus and allergy diseases that other people did. And it was all thought because it was it had to do with the, the inhalation of the, of the salt. But anyway, she came in and she told me all about that. And did I think that this would be something good for her sinuses? I really did not know anything about it. Um, so I did some investigating. I pulled some studies from Europe. Um, I went to a salt therapy spa that was here that we only had one at the time, met the owner, went through a session to see what it was all about. And after getting the European research, I really felt that this was something that was, was beneficial and could be an adjuvant of treatment um, for my patients. So that really spurred me to think, well, how can I maybe incorporate salt, you know, into products that would be beneficial for my patients at home? I also see a lot of patients who get addicted to the decongestant sprays over the counter, and it's really difficult to get them off of those types of addicting nasal sprays. So I came up with a formula for a nasal aroma inhaler that incorporates Himalayan sea salt, that's infused with seven different essential oils that I chose for 
their ability to treat seasonal symptoms and help with uh, nasal congestion. And that's how the inhaler, you know, was born essentially. And now I have one for adults, I have one for children, and I have one for uh, women who are pregnant or nursing. And then other products, skincare product line came along with uh, a cocoa butter that's infused with Himalayan sea salt. It's very healing and moisturizing and nourishing for the skin, as well as um, salt scrubs. And I'm now in research and development with a hemp certified facility in Pennsylvania, where I'm working on a CBD line that um, will be launching hopefully by the end of this year. So that's my entrepreneur. I call it my side hustle. You know, <laughs> you got to have a side hustle. It's not my side hustle that is really transforming into an into a business so that's where where salt me is right now and i'm i'm developing salt me even as a full-time surgeon well dr farmer thank you so much for joining us on the show thank you for sharing about your life and your career and the amazing things that you've accomplished and you're continuing to do where can people get a hold of you where can they find salt me so I can be reached um, through social media on Instagram. My Instagram page is Dr. Knows Best. That's D-R Knows N-O-S-E Best. Dr. Knows Best. You can find me through Instagram as well as TikTok. I've become a little addicted to TikTok. You'll see <laughs> if you go on my <laughs> you go on my TikTok page. They're both Dr. Knows Best. And you can learn um, all about Salt Me or even enjoy the products for Salt Me if you go to www.saltmepink.com. That's saltmepink.com. Well, thank you again for joining us for all you've shared. Thank you so much for having me. I am very honored to, that you would invite me onto your show. Thank you so much. Black Doctors Podcast is a nonprofit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen. Tune in next week for another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast with Dr. Stephen Bradley, 